Welcome everybody back to the podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by one of my local colleagues, Mary Mulcahy, who is across town at Tulane. She is an associate professor. She's the assistant program director. And most relevantly, she's the director of the Women's Sports Medicine Program. She's also a research powerhouse, and we're going to discuss a couple of her articles today. Uh, As usual, we're discussing some brand new stuff that is in e-publication ahead of print. And the first one we'll start with is a recent AJSM systematic review entitled Blood Flow Restriction Training for Athletes. Dr. Mulcahy, welcome to the show. Great, Carter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and uh, really looking forward to discussing this article in more detail. First of all, what is blood flow restriction therapy? So for those not familiar, you're putting a venous tourniquet on the proximal arm or leg while working out to boost your training. Theoretically, you then get stronger because your muscles are under stress. This could potentially help high-performance athletes or post-op patients or injured patients who can't lift as much and want to get more bang for their buck. What would you add to that sort of very simplistic description of uh, blood flow restriction therapy? Right. So that was a, that's a great overview. And I would just add that, you know, by including venous outflow from the extremity, you actually get an anaerobic environment. So the resulting anaerobic environment actually promotes muscle hypertrophy through cell signaling and hormonal changes, which is similar to what we see at higher intensity training with more resistance. And there are some studies that actually suggest that with the use of BFR, resistance training at a level of about 20 to 50% of a one rep maximum can result in muscle hypertrophy, which is similar to traditional strength training protocols. It does, though, remain unclear how BFR elicits cellular responses to increase recovery and promote muscle hypertrophy. There are a lot of different hypotheses, including that the cellular mechanism is related to metabolic stress, increased muscle fiber recruitment, or other metabolic signaling mechanisms leading to increased muscle development through increased production of growth hormone or accumulation of metabolites leading to muscle swelling. In this study, the uh, authors found pretty promising results overall. Uh, The studies on blood flow restriction therapy date back only to 1998, and the authors found 10 high-quality papers to include in this review. They were all in serious athletes. Five looked at college athletes, which is most relevant to our population for this podcast. Five looked at semi-pro athletes, and nine of the 10 studies showed increased strength, and seven of those beat out the control groups. Sports-specific drills like sprinting also usually improved, and but only half of the studies showed increased muscle mass. So in conclusion, blood flow restriction therapy seems promising, but we still don't know exactly how to use it. Do you combine it with traditional weight training? How tight should the tourniquet be? How heavy should the weights be? Uh, Should we also use it for post-op patients who are restricted to partial weight bearing? So adding a little bit to what you said, so overall, there's a paucity of literature about the use of blood flow restriction among well-trained athletes and whether BFR training can actually elicit similar responses to what we see in athletes who follow more traditional resistance training protocols. So the overall purpose of our paper was actually to analyze the available literature regarding the use of BFR to supplement traditional resistance training in healthy athletes. So as you mentioned, we performed a systematic review. We used two different databases, PubMed and Ovid Medline. We found 10 studies that actually met our inclusion criteria. And, um, and you touched on some of the key findings um, 
And just to add to that, too, is that we found that, interestingly, that occlusive pressures actually varied pretty significantly across the studies with a range from about 110 to 240 millimeters of mercury. And we did conclude, based on our, the results of our study, that the literature does appear overall very promising and that it supports the use of BFR in terms of having a positive effect on improving strength, muscle size, and the markers of sports performance in healthy athletes. Uh, and it may be that combining traditional resistance training with BFR can allow our athletes to maximize athletic performance and remain in good health. But admittedly, additional studies absolutely should be conducted to find an optimal occlusive pressure to maximize training improvements. So you have clearly thought about this much more than the average sports medicine doctor. Are you a believer at this point in blood flow restriction training? So I definitely think that there's a role uh, and a place for this in the care of athletes. Um, you know, there are a variety of uses for BFR, including incorporation into training regimens for our high-level athletes or in post-op rehab for patients with limited activity and weight-bearing restrictions. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that validation of BFR has actually lagged behind commercialization. So there's a great article that was published in the November 2020 issue of AJSM with senior author Ashish Beatty from the University of Michigan entitled Local and Systemic Effect of Blood Flow Restriction Therapy in an Animal Model. In that study, uh, Dr. Beatty and his authors, his co-authors found that ischemic therapy did not induce gains in muscle mass, contractility strength, fiber cross-sectional area, or satellite cell density locally or systemically. In, in it was this in the animal model, as I mentioned. Now, one thing that I was wondering when I was reading this, because I confess I have not seen this in practice. Is BFR therapy really hard for the athlete? It sounds like it could be really painful uh, just letting your limb intentionally get ischemic while you're working out. So that's an excellent question. And I'd say overall, athletes tolerate this pretty well. I'd say athletes and patients in general. If they have any discomfort at any point, of course, the, the cuff can be removed completely or certainly the pressure can be decreased or the total duration of inflation can be decreased. For our athletes at Tulane, we offer, often incorporate BFR, uh, especially in post-op patients, about two to three times a week for eight to nine minutes at a time. So it's not a long period of time. And the rest of their rehab session is done without any occlusion. So that's just a, like a standard rehab session. And at this point in your clinical practice, outside of those Tulane athletes, have you been referring patients for BFR therapy? And if not, do you, do you plan to based on what you've been learning about it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have not yet incorporated BFR as a routine part of my clinical practice. Now, I take care of a lot of recreational athletes and patients with a mix of shoulder and uh, knee-related injuries. Um, and I'd say overall, currently, there's, a, there's limited data to support the need or efficacy of BFR in patients with, for example, rotator cuff pathology, which for my personal practice, that's a large portion of my practice. Now, with regards to some of our higher level athletes at Tulane specifically, they frequently get BFR, especially in the post-op period. And so I would absolutely consider incorporating it in the right patient. And I just want to give a huge shout out to our staff, you know, our physical therapists, our athletic trainers, et cetera, at Tulane, uh, which this team, especially with regards to BFR, is led by Andre Labe, and he is phenomenal. They are incredibly well-versed in this technique, and I would have complete confidence um, in having my patients, you know, be cared for with regards to BFR with that team. Well, that's especially helpful because the listeners are mostly going to be taking care of adolescent athletes with those collegiate athletes being sort of at the upper age range. So in what you've seen so far, who is the ideal candidate for this kind of therapy? 
Yeah, and just uh, piggybacking up off of what you were just saying, I personally have not seen anything in the literature with regard to BFR in adolescent athletes. Uh, and so I think it would be interesting, and, and hopefully studies are starting to incorporate, you know, kind of the older adolescents so that we can get that data and really understand how they respond to this. Uh, but I'd say currently we have good evidence for the efficacy of BFR in, our, in post-op patients, uh, especially when pain, swelling, and weight-bearing restrictions can decrease their ability to do some exercises on their own, or certainly the amount of weight that they can lift. So there's a lot of great data for lower extremity injuries, especially for the knee, but there's much less with regards to upper extremity injuries. You know, our team at Tulane is using BFR frequently for a variety of lower extremity injuries, knee being most common, but also foot and ankle injuries. And I'd say that uh, I'm personally sort of less familiar with the data regard with regards to foot and ankle specifically. Uh, I've seen a lot with regards to the knee. And then just saying, you know, additionally, based on the results of our recent systematic review, it does seem that BFR can safely be considered to supplement training in healthy athletes. But this has not yet become standard of care at our institution or really at any institution in the United States. What would you say to a patient, let's say hypothetically a you know, relatively young athlete, or to a physical therapist taking care of those young athletes who isn't using BFR therapy but asks you about it? Right. So, so first, I'd start definitely by giving them sort of an, an overview and an explanation of what is BFR, what does it mean, what do we know about it in general terms. And then emphasize that there's good evidence that BFR can be beneficial in certain instances uh, that currently we, most of our data is in lower extremity injuries, but that we still really need more information in terms of exactly how BFR works. Great. And before we move on to your uh, other article, is there anything else we should cover about BFR therapy? Yeah, I would just emphasize to everyone listening that BFR is an absolutely an excellent tool and should be taken into consideration when we're caring for our patients, uh, especially, you know, considering it for post-op, but also considering in, in certain circumstances, would it be beneficial for our healthy athletes? You know, not everyone can tolerate it at this point, or not everyone can tolerate it. And at this point, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for broad-based application. Uh, so there's a lot of ongoing research, both at the clinical and basic science level. And as mentioned previously, we do still have some work to do in terms of getting a better understanding of how BFR works. Got it. Thank you for that explanation. And before I let you go, I just want to cover this other review article you authored recently as the senior author from JAAOS, the Yellow Journal, entitled Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, an Orthopedic Perspective. As Director of Women's Sports Medicine at Tulane, I was hoping you could give me and the audience basically a refresher on the current thinking and maybe even just the current terminology of relative energy deficiency in sport and the condition formerly known as the female athlete, athlete triad and just sort of bring us up to date. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for the opportunity to kind of discuss this and give a broad overview. Um, so relative energy deficiency in sports, also known as RED-S, is a constellation of clinical findings that's related to low energy availability. And that really is the key thing to take away from this. The manifestations are quite variable, but it can, can include things like endocrine and reproductive dysfunction, impaired bone and muscle health, and psychological complaints, as well as performance issues, among many others. Unlike the previous terminology, which you touched on, the female athlete triad, Red S encompasses a broader range of signs and symptoms and includes descriptions for the male athlete, which is really critical. So Red S and this low energy availability can absolutely occur in both male and female athletes. And that is an important point for all listeners to, um, to kind of take away from this. Since first being described in 2014 by the International Olympic Committee, 
a huge amount of research has sought to define, prevent, and treat the underlying conditions of REDS. Now, this newly described clinical entity actually sought to expand on the previously common term, the female athlete triad, right. which was introduced in 1992, right? And now we know that the female athlete triad is actually a spectrum of disease with three core pathologic changes. So low energy availability is one of them, menstrual dysfunction and low bone mineral density. So REDS specifically not only describes the broader pathologic responses to low energy availability, such as cardiovascular, GI, endocrine, and reproductive dysfunctions, uh, but it's a syndrome that occurs in male athletes, again, and I can't emphasize that enough. That is really a very important point. Some other just key points about REDS, right? So this low energy availability, what is it? In very general terms, it's a mismatch between the athlete's energy intake and the energy expended during exercise. So it may not be purposeful, right? It may, it's not like everybody is restricting their eating, but it's just they may not be taking in enough fuel to compensate for the amount of energy that they're expending with their physical activity. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to get an accurate assessment of energy availability because of multiple factors. So including lack of a standardized protocol for energy availability assessment, self-report of energy intake, and the time discrepancy between the period of mismatched eating and exercise behaviors with formal assessment. There's huge variability in symptomatology and presenting complaints. It's really difficult to fully capture. And that, that makes it difficult to fully capture the prevalence of low energy availability. And I would just say, you know, it's, what's really important is that the athletes and their support system, coaches, et cetera, are aware of the warning signs. We also collectively, all of us that are involved in sports medicine and taking care of these patients, need to dispel the myth that thinness and leanness equates with performance. One other point I'd just like to emphasize is that treatment involves a multidisciplinary team-based approach. So again, it's the athlete, family, the medical team, coaches, and the main focus really needs to be on addressing the energy deficits by increasing energy availability and decreasing energy expenditure or potentially both. One final component, and we talk a lot in general in sports medicine about return to play, right? So determining return to play in terms of REDS, you can actually use a clinical assessment tool, um, which is called the CAT, the REDS CAT, and that's modeled after the SCAT tool, so the sport concussion assessment tool. And this is uh, designed to, to help the clinician um, determine when an athlete with REDS is able to safely return to play. I think this is awesome. Uh, I think this terminology is so helpful just in the way I think about this. You know, I used to be a pretty aggressive runner a long, long time ago. And I remember in medical school thinking back to uh, cross-country runners I knew and the rates that were reported for the female athlete triad and thinking, how could that many people be anorexic? That just doesn't compute. But then when I think about it in terms of LEA or low energy availability and just being a mismatch, it completely makes sense. You know, you don't have to be anorexic. You could be eating more than a normal diet. But if you're running 60 miles a week, then you have, you have that mismatch, even though you're not anorexic by the traditional way we would think about it and the way that the female athlete triad implied. So this is great. This really, I think, changes my thinking and clarifies the terminology for everyone. My last yeah. question... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Please. I was just going to say, no, I think you make an excellent point there. And I also remember being back in high school and seeing people, and, and then you think largely about cross-country runners, but I had the same experience. 
And, and I think an important point in all of this is involving nutrition, right? It may just be that the athletes, the coaches, the parents don't understand what an athlete in that sort of high intensity situation needs to be eating to uh, have enough energy, have enough fuel to be able to compete at that level and perform well and stay healthy. So my last question, do you have in your mind a set team of providers that, that should be included in taking care of these patients? Are there psychologists or is there a broader team than just the orthopedist? Yeah, so that is an excellent question. And this is this comes up a lot just with the care of female athletes, although red S is not, you know, this is relevant, um, very importantly, relevant to male and female athletes. So I would say the multidisciplinary team is critical and is comprised, you know, definitely having an orthopedic surgeon there is important. Primary care, sports medicine, a sports psychologist, a sports nutritionist, and potentially even an endocrinologist, also involving your physical therapists and athletic trainers. They are an important, very, very important members of the team because all of these people are involved in taking care of athletes. And really, uh, everyone has the same interest in mind, which is keeping the athlete healthy, having them be able to perform at a safe level, and just trying to minimize and, and ultimately prevent injuries. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I've learned several things, um, and I think this is going to be very valuable for our audience who, like myself, take care of mostly pediatric patients, but that certainly ranges through high school and college athletes. Um, so this is uh, very valuable stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Carter. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. 